So how do you like the gym? Yeah, I kind of like it. Like, I don't like, no, don't get me wrong. I want to go back to the auditorium. But isn't it kind of fun to have a little change of pace? Kind of not take yourself too seriously and be like, so we're sitting in bouncy chairs in a gym. Cool. <laughs> All right. So I promise not to go too long today, so I better get started. Um, about a year ago, I, I was listening to a series of talks, and I, re- I heard one from a guy named Henry Cloud. Some of you might be familiar with him. He's a, a kind of a fairly famous Christian psychologist, and he was talking about different stages of faith and doubt and how those two interplay and work together and kind of lead us to different levels of maturity in our faith, usually. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a big, it's a lot more complicated than this, but he gave kind of four basic categories for, for how faith and doubt kind of work together and lead us through these different stages. And uh, I, the only reason I mentioned that is I thought that these stages, one, they might encourage some of you where you're at. And two, they almost perfectly give an overview of where we've been and where we're going to go today in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. I'll have a few verses up here, but I would encourage you to to follow along on your phone or some of you actually use books. So eight weeks ago, we opened up this book of Ecclesiastes and we met this guy named Solomon. And and in the in the first four chapters, we've seen him go through what I'm going to say are these three very distinct stages. In the first two chapters, we saw basically that he was faithless. This is what Henry Cloud would say, uh, a life without faith. Now, I'm not saying that that he didn't. I'm clearly Solomon. His father was King David, who wrote all the Psalms. And clearly he was a Jew. Clearly he grew up in an atmosphere of faith. But those first two chapters, do you see him at all going to God for answers? No. I mean, he's, he's desperately searching for meaning in life. So where does he go? He says, I'm going to throw the greatest party the world's ever seen. I, I'm going to do a work project unlike anyone's ever seen. I'm going to, I'm going to become the best in this category. I'm going, to, I'm going to make contributions to society unlike anyone before me. He plants national forests and builds reservoirs. He says, I'm going to celebrate the arts unlike anyone else. And finally, what does he do? He says, I'm going to celebrate women unlike anyone else. Takes a thousand wives. But here's the thing, though. When he goes through that, when he searches everywhere to find his meaning and purpose in life, Apart from God, just in things under the sun, when he uses all of his power and resources to find that meaning, where does he end up? Well, he comes to this crisis. He says it's still there. That void, that thing he was looking for, it's still there. It's still nagging him. In fact, the more he explores all those things, the more he realizes that those things can't fill what he's really looking for. Like, after you've planted a national forest, What's the next step? After you've slept with a thousand women, what's next? A thousand and one? We're a church, right? You're at church right now, so we don't want to act like we are faithless. But here's the reality. That all of us, right now, where we're at, we have days and times where, where we're in that stage. But rather than going to God for our meaning and purpose in life, we, we say, well, maybe this work project... You know, here's what I hear single people. If I just got married, then my life would make sense. And then once they get married, it's 
for the moms, it's always, well, if we just had kids, then my purpose, like, I would be a mother and I would be someone. And the guy's always like, well, if I just got that next raise, and then if we just got this house, and then if we just experienced this, and we went on this trip, and if we just did this, like, always looking around the corner for the next thing, because then I'll be somebody, then my life will have meaning. And, and Solomon says, I've tried all of it. He says, if you haven't had all your dreams crushed yet, it's coming. But this crisis is a beautiful thing. Because if you notice, after chapters 2 and 3, where does Solomon, or 1 and 2, where does Solomon end? He comes to a crisis to the end that all of these things, I can search and pursue and do all of these things, and they are never going to give me what I'm looking for in life. So he has to go someplace else. And that's when he finally comes to the point and says, if God doesn't give my life meaning and purpose, then I have no hope. And he falls on the grace of God. And this is where we see faith start appearing in this story of his life. Where he really says, I have to depend on God. And that leads to the whole next stage, right? You, you, chapter 3 is where we come to. Solomon in chapter 3, he makes this awesome confession of faith. This is what, this, so the first stage is faithlessness. The next stage is this confessional faith where I believe the right things about God. I believe the right things, the right doctrines. So Solomon, he knows the right doctrine. In chapter 3, he says, God is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is all good. Nothing happens without his knowledge permission. He oversees everything that happens in my life and he confesses by faith that he is making everything beautiful on its own time. If you've ever trusted God with your life, then you know what this is like. When you come to an end of all your searching, and you say, if God isn't the answer, I don't know what it is. And then you start hearing the right answers. The answers that we actually have from the scriptures about God, about humanity, about evil, about why am I here on this planet, about God's mission and his purpose, about eternity. There are answers that we find in the scriptures. And I, frankly, I love this stage. This is a stage of exuberance and excitement and assurance. Like, I know something. My life does have meaning. But with that stage of confessional faith, you find that there's a weakness that comes along with it. And it's the tendency to see the whole world in black and white. It's the tendency to think that because we have absolute assurance of, a, of some things, that we actually have the answer to everything. And we don't. Now, don't get me wrong. I definitely believe that at whatever stage you're at, you have to you have to be able to discern good from evil, right from wrong. There are differences, but this doesn't mean that we have answers to everything. There are a lot of things that just don't fit into a nice, neat box. Things that don't fit into our systems of theology. Things that the Bible does not speak about. And unfortunately, there are Christians... And there are whole communities of Christians that seem to get stuck at that stage of confessional faith where we've got the right answers and don't ask any questions beyond that. We've got the right answers. So, so, so if someone asks a question that says, this doesn't fit in my experience, what do I do with that? They say, we don't talk about that. Or better yet, they pretend 
They just say a scripture louder. God works in all things. All things work together for the good of God who loves, uh, the, the good of those who love God and been called according to his purpose. There you go. Stop asking questions. Now Solomon, he's a smart guy and he asks a lot of questions so he can't stay there long. So we see, we saw last week that he immediately goes from the stage of, of faithlessness to confessional faith to the stage of just a desert period. Doubts. What does he do? Right after he confesses the, the greatness of God and what he's doing, making everything beautiful, he walks out the door and says, and then I saw injustice. I saw in the very place where God was supposed to be honored and his values represented on earth, in that very place, I saw evil. And then I saw oppression. And the worst part was that nobody cared. Like, that there are millions of people out there being oppressed right now, and nobody cares. And then he goes on and he says he sees loneliness and this epidemic, this plague of loneliness and selfishness. That our whole world is full of these ugly realities. And he's, he's just made this confession that God is making everything beautiful and all he sees is ugliness around him. Many of you know exactly what Solomon's going through here. In this stage, God feels distant and your heart feels dry. And the Bible doesn't feel true. You don't experience the life that you felt promised. The abundant life seems like a joke to you. The promises of God just ring empty to you. At this point, the Christian answers don't seem to be enough and nothing fits into neatly into your little boxes. Now this is the point from faithlessness to confessional faith to doubts in a desert period, this is the point where a lot of people actually just walk away from the faith. This is the point where a lot of people say, organized Christianity doesn't have answers, the Bible doesn't have answers, everyone's lied to me. And they just walk away. But Solomon won't. He's going to fight for this. He's going to struggle through this. And he says, I do believe, I somehow, I'm, I do believe that God is all powerful and all good and he is making everything beautiful in his own time and I see my life is broken and there's ugliness everywhere and I am going to do whatever I can to hold these two together. And if you notice last week, he didn't even give us an answer. He didn't even try an answer because there is no answer. He, he doesn't try. It's not Even if you did have some intellectual answer for how that works together, do you think it would be really satisfactory to anyone? So what does he do? He just says last week, says, here's the deal. I'm not going to tell you how to answer this. I'm going to tell you how to survive it. And you can't do it alone. Like, if you try and walk this journey with your faith intact alone, one of these times you're going to fall and you're not going to get back up. That it's too dark, it's too long, there are too many questions, too much hurt, too much ugliness out there. And then we see when he walks through that, he's going to tell us, though, that there's another place to go. That if you make it through the desert, through the drought, through the dry times, through the times when God feels distant, that your faith can actually be strengthened. That's what we're going to talk about today. This is what we'll see happen in Ecclesiastes starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Let me just say, if you are currently there and you're struggling with these doubts, if God feels distant, if it's you, like we talked about last week, if it's you, where your teenager has cancer, 
It's you who loses your job. It's your spouse who leaves. It's you who get the call and find out it's untreatable. If you survive that, it's going to do something to your faith. You're not going to have the same faith that you had before that. But I'm going to suggest to you that if we walk, if we if we listen to Solomon's coaching in this, and we walk the path that he tells us, that it's going to be better. Watch this. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Literally, this says in, in Hebrew, watch your feet. That's his first thing, okay? Watch your feet. Now, this um, when, when I was uh, uh, finished my sophomore year of college, I went and was a camp counselor at Summer's Best Two Weeks. It's a camp in the Laurel Highlands over by Pittsburgh. It's it's awesome. You guys should send your kids there, by the way. It's just, it's great. I think the Drickers do. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 an awesome camp. Just just for what it's worth. I loved it. Worked there for a summer, and in there, I got the opportunity at Lake Gloria to okay. I know you might be surprised, but I, this is an ath- athletic sports camp. I know you might be surprised, but I'm actually not that athletic. <laughs> I, I love kids. Uh, I, 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 you know, I could do some push-ups at the time, but, but like, like they're like, what, what are you gonna teach, Paul? And they had this long list of like sports I could teach, and I'd be like, I could teach archery. Uh, <laughs> and then I saw my perfect sweet spot: water skiing. So, I was, at the time, I was buff, I was like, ah, oh, so I get to sit out there, get a suntan, wear my cool shades, and then, and then pull these teenagers around behind me, and, and the boat, this will be awesome, and they didn't just have a boat, they had a ski nautique. If any of you know the water skiing world, that is the sexiest boat you can own in the water skiing. I mean, this is just like, this is the ideal opportunity, so I'm like, this is awesome. So, you get out there, and what do you do? You throw a couple kids in the water, actually, just one at a time, and, um, and you put some, skis on them, and now we're going to walk through, like, how do you water ski? Now, if you, you haven't spent any time teaching people this, uh, you learn quickly that you really have to walk them through it. Like, if you just take a 12-year-old and you throw him in the lake with skis on, what's going to happen is, is the first thing he's going to do is he's going to lock his legs, and he's going to try and pull himself up as the boat goes. Now, that is exactly how you get water up your nose at 30 knots. It's a cleansing experience, but it's not very helpful for skiing. So, so uh, what do you do? You walk them through. You say, "Okay, I need you to sit like this, bend your knees, and you got to lock your arms." So here's the key: when you do it, you lock your arms. And the reason you do that is because your tendency—you have to—you have to ignore all of your natural instincts here. You want to pull yourself up, but if you pull yourself up, you are going to dive into the water. The boat has to do the work. And they say, okay, okay. And so they do it. They'd start to get up. And then what would they do? They'd get scared. So they pull themselves. And this is worse. If, if you start out and you just don't make it up, that's one thing. But if you start to get up and then you pull yourself, that's when you have like the end over end, like 12 year old skis flying everywhere. And, um, I actually enjoyed that probably too much, but <laughs> here's the deal. At some point, now some people just never get it. They're just like, Forget it, I'm tubing. I'm like, okay. But for those who persevered, and I, what a joy it was to be able to have this 12-year-old kid who for the first time gets up on skis. He, he's just like, okay, it clicks. I get it. 
I can't pull myself up. The boat has to do the work for me. And once he gets it, he gets a feel for it, the boat pulls him up. He makes it all the way around the lake, and he's just like doing high fives and wants to drop a ski and thinks he's the best thing ever. And it, it was a great experience. Now, now, when we come to this passage, some of you feel like you're drowning in doubt. You feel like God is distant. You feel like your heart is dry. And Solomon's going to take us, where does he take us to? He's going to take us to worship. And let me tell you, right off the bat, he's going to say, if you want to get out of this, you cannot pull yourself up and you're going to have to ignore all your instincts. Your instincts are going to be to hide from God, to, to, to zone out, to shut off. Your, your instincts are going to be uh, to do something flashy or do something emotionally driven. All your instincts are going to be to muscle your way out of this. If I just read another book, go to another conference, if Paul would just finally preach a good sermon, if one of those things would come together, then ah, that would solve everything. And Solomon's going to say, it's not how it works. Instead, he's going to coach you through. Watch your feet and let God do the work. Watch this. Guard your steps. Watch your feet when you go to the house of God. So, watch your feet. This phrase, if you, you read through the scriptures, you won't be surprised by this. This is a phrase that comes up all the time. Your feet, or walking, what you do with your feet, is a metaphor for how you live your life. Imagine going back in time, halfway across the world, ancient Palestine, and it's uh, 90 degrees in the shade, and everyone's walking around on these dusty roads, either barefoot or in leather sandals. Okay, when you walk, everywhere you go, your feet is going to pick up the scent and the dirt and just the places you've been. So you're walking through a grass field, your feet are going to be stained green when you finish. You're walking through dog dew, your feet are going to reek when you finished. Right? Where you go, your feet are going to... And this is why your feet were disgusting. Have you ever smelled a pair of pure raw leather sandals with no socks? You will not forget that smell soon. It, it's disgusting. This is what made uh, foot washing so necessary and so lowly, which is so awesome that our Lord would do that. But it's not just about your feet that stink and the stains that they collect. This is a metaphor it's a metaphor for your soul. There's a spiritual reality here. That where you go in life affects your soul. That the things you do day to day, where you take yourself, it brushes against it. It leaves stains. You pick up some of it. Some of you come to church and frankly, you are so stained from what you've done this past week and your soul reeks with the world. It says you need to watch yourself. Watch where you're walking when you come to the house of God. You'll remember Moses. He was, um, he was a shepherd, so his feet were probably particularly stinky. What happens when he goes to the burning bush and he wants to meet God? God says, stop right where you're at. This is holy ground. Take off your shoes. That has nothing to do with, with physical stink. Or sheep manure. That has everything to do. This is symbolic. But when you come to God, you, we are coming to holy ground. And how you walk and where you walk is going to affect that. 
Solomon here says, pay attention to your feet. Where have you been walking? If you spend your whole week walking in selfishness and lust and envy and pride and anger and gossip, what do you think going to the house of God is going to do for you at that point? If you're going to ignore what God has clearly said in His Word about things like justice and compassion and gentleness and forgiveness and purity, and then you show up all week, you ignore all of that, and then on Sunday you show up thinking there's going to be some magical thing that happens, Solomon says, you're missing it. The worship doesn't start right here. The worship begins on Monday. Where your feet lead you. Solomon's saying there are doubts and our struggles and our brokenness. None of this is going to make sense until you start walking with the Lord and meeting Him in worship. Second half of the verse goes like this. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. That if you're in that desert place and God feels distant and you don't know what you believe, listen to what he says. Your instinct is going to be run away from God, but he doesn't say that. He says, listen, go near and listen to God. Now, go near. When we talk about this in in that context, he's referring to the temple. The God had chose a particular place where his presence was, was made known. But here's the thing. Um, Solomon knew, and he says, everyone who's not a fool knows that God is already with you wherever you go throughout the week. That it's not like you show up in church and now God sees you for the first time all week. If you read um, Psalm 139, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the seed, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If you say, surely it's dark, God can't see me right now. The light becomes night around you. Even the darkness will not be dark to God. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. Do you hear what this is saying? My son, when he wants to play hide-and-go-seek, uh, he says, okay, count, Daddy. And so I'm covering my eyes. One, two, three. And then when I take him off, what I'll see is it'll look something like this. He thinks that if he can't see me, I can't see him. That it's just as ridiculous. That if you think you can walk through your week doing whatever you want, and God doesn't see that, and He only sees you when you show up in a, in a church setting, you're fooling yourself. You're a fool. And you're going to offer what He calls this sacrifices of fools. In Hebrew, um, there are, there's about four or five different words for sacrifice. This is the word zebah, which I'm sure all of you are really excited about. It's an offering of thanksgiving, a fellowship offering. Is what this word means. So this is a particular type of sacrifice. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice, the symbol of worship, the, the sacrifice of fools. You know why it's so foolish? Here's the deal. For the fellowship offering, what do you do? You show up to the temple. You bring your cow or your bull or something like that. You show up. 
you you slaughter it right there on the spot. They take the blood and the innards and they do their little, the priests do their little thing in their funky outfit. It's great. And then you have a rockin' barbecue. That's what you do at a Zabah. It's, it's the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a barbecue. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So what you're saying is, is some people got confused. They would show up and they just showed up for a barbecue. There's a rockin' barbecue with great music. All my friends are there. We're going to eat as much as you can. It's going to be awesome. And so they would go there and they would completely forget about God. That some people will come to worship and it will have nothing to do with God. And that type of sacrifice is, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 15, an abomination to the Lord. Abomination is one of those words that... um that we don't use very often. We should more often though. That's an abomination. We, we would sound Christian at least. Uh, God doesn't use that word very often either. You know that the main time when he uses the word abomination is in, you think of it, is um, Daniel. When he refers to a guy named Antichrist, you might have heard of him. Who goes into the temple and sets up an idol to himself and slaughters pigs on the very brazen altar of God and worships himself. And God said, that's an abomination. That's how offended I am at that thing. And God just said, if you come to church for every reason except me, that's an abomination and you're a fool. Someone who lives however they want, ignoring God's clear commands about justice forgiveness and sexual purity and then shows up at worship like God doesn't care how you live the other six days. It's an abomination. You know what Solomon's going to say here though? Do you see that? The, the, the big command here. You know what's better than a zibah? Better than a rockin' barbecue? It's to listen. Like if you actually showed up to listen to what God has clearly said. Now this, um, let me be clear here, this is not referring to some type of mystical experience where you hear an audible voice of God or anything like that. Uh, personally, I do believe that God speaks to our hearts, that He leads us, that He, He can lead us personally by the power of His Spirit, and, and we need to discern that, and that's a good thing. But this is not what this is talking about. This is, this is a word Shema. You may have heard of it. The Jews prayed it out loud every day, three times a day. Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. It goes through the whole thing that you should wear it on your forehead and on your, on your sleeves and nail it on your doorsteps. That this is all about listening to the commands of God. The Shema here is is not some mystical experience with God. I hope all of you do have that. But these experiences can never take the place of simple obedience. That's what this is referring to. Obedience to what God has commanded. To listen to God is simply to obey. That when you are full of doubts, when your heart feels dry and God feels distant, what's the first thing he says? He says, go to worship. And make sure you obey the things that he's clearly said. 
Verse 2. Do not be quick with your mouth, and do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Some of you are, look at that and you're like, yes, my action point is that I am going to pray less. No. No, that's that's not what it's saying. This is not about the length of a prayer per se. If you read through First uh, Kings chapter 8, you'll see that Solomon himself prays some very lengthy prayers. If you look at the life of our Lord Jesus, there are entire nights where he goes out and prays by himself all night long. So this couldn't be about the length of the prayer per se. The problem here, you'll notice, is being quick with your mouth and hasty in your heart. The problem is thinking that God is somehow wowed by your words. The problem is that you are putting on a show for God. It's Thanksgiving. You're sitting there and you have that uncle who speaks with kind of a hick twang. And the only time you've heard him use the word Jesus is actually as an expletive. And then he stands up and it's now time to give thanks. And he stands up and, and perfect Queen's English says, our Lord and Heavenly Father, we beseech thee this day, thine servants, for thine bountiful blessings from the harvest. You're like, what just happened? In Jesus' day, this was a big problem. People thought that they would somehow, if they used the right words or said the right prayers, that God would sit up and be like, did you hear him? He just said, beseech thee. He used thine. He called me thine. That's great. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says, stop it. Just stop talking. If you're doing it to try and impress me, just stop praying. If your prayers are done to impress God, then this shows how little you know of the true God. True righteousness True prayers are a gift from God and it's experienced when we know Him as our Father. You know, when my children need something, they say, Daddy, will you help me? They, they never say, Thine Father, most exalted, I beseech thee. They might when they're teens. I'm going to teach them that. <laughs> Listen, we don't pray to earn God's love. We pray because God loves us. We don't pray to earn God's favor. We pray because He gives it freely. It's grace. It's a response to the gospel that God gives everything and we respond in gratitude and love. So Solomon's going to look at us. Next he's going to turn from prayer and he's going to say, not only are we tempted to put on some kind of spiritual show, but in verse 3, watch this, we're going to see that sometimes, sometimes, we physically show up to church, but are mentally checked out the entire time. No. Verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. Okay, this verse seems a little bit obscure, but it, it helps that if you, if you realize in, in the Hebrew that the word for dream can also mean daydream. And I tend to think, uh, along with a number of Hebrew scholars, guys like Derek Kidner and some others, that that this is referring to daydreams. So, Solomon is suggesting that maybe, just maybe, people might actually go to a worship service like this one right now 
And they walk in, and they sing the songs, and they stand to pray, and they sit to listen to the sermon, and the entire time that's going on, they're actually going through a to-do list. They're thinking about the email they need to write, and what they're going to cook for lunch, and how they're going to get those things done that week. That they're so busy, that their mind is full of daydreams the entire time the service is going on. Thank goodness that would never happen in our context, so we can just move on from there. Uh, my favorite one, uh, Derek Kidner, a Hebrew scholar, he actually refers to this as uh, this type of prayer and this type of um, worship as verbal drooling. <laughs> Solomon said that if we're just going through the motions, it's not going to fix what's broken in you. Like, if you're distant and dark and, and you can't see God in anything, if you're just mouthing things, if you've just got verbal drool, do, do you think that's going to help? He's not impressed with your verbal drool, and he's not impressed with promises that you make that you can't keep. And this is the last section. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is not better to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you and uh, what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. The word for fear is the exact same Hebrew word for worship. It's the end of the service. And your life is a mess and things are falling apart. And I say, today's the day. You can make a decision. And uh, and we got a couple of Brits over by the cross, which isn't here. That You can imagine it. And you're like, oh, yes. This is what I need. This is what I want. So you come forward and you say, I promise God, today is different. I rededicate everything. I'm, I'm never going to cuss again, and I'm never going to think a bad thought again, and I'm never going to do this again, and I'm never going to gossip again, and I'm never going to be envious again. I'm going to give away all my money, and, I, and I'm going to become a missionary, and I'm going to do it. Today's really going to be different. There's nothing wrong with making commitments. You should commit yourself to the Lord. You should commit yourself to repent, and to change, and to grow and to go wherever God is sending you. And the Bible is full of examples of this. And as a pastor, I would love to see some of you, like there are times when you're sitting in a service and you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you. I need to do that. I need to do that. I need to go there. I need to give to that. I need to be part of that. And I don't want to quench that. I really think there are times where it's helpful for you to come come forward and say, I feel like the Holy Spirit's nudging me. Uh, maybe I need to do something. Maybe I need to commit to something here. But words are cheap. It's easy to make a promise that you cannot and will not fulfill. And Solomon says that's not going to help your faith and that's not going to solve anything and you should just keep your mouth shut. You know what's better than some emotionally driven commitment that you make at the end of the service? You watch your feet. Watch where you're walking day by day. Live in obedience to what you already know to be true. Listen to what God has clearly spoken to you. That's better. 
If you're in dry times and God feels distant and the Bible doesn't feel true and you're full of doubts, I want you to get this. There are no three steps to get out of it. There's no magic book to read that once you read this, oh, then you'll be set free. There's no conference. There's no sermon I can preach and there's no song Greg can play that is going to magically fix you. In fact, until you learn that you can't pull yourself out of it, you'll probably never get out of it. That if you try and muscle your way out of it, every time you pull, you're just going to crash like one of those water skiers. But there's a few things you can do. Watch your feet. Watch your feet. Walk. Watch where you're walking. Watch how you're living your life. You know, if you're not listening to where God has clearly spoken to you, clearly about issues of purity and forgiveness and debt and, and all the issues that we have, they are clearly God has spoken to you. If you're not listening to those, why do you think He's now going to speak into your dry time or into your doubts. As soon as you rely on your own strength, you're not going to get up. And so Solomon is coaching us here. Watch your feet. Listen to what God has already said. And don't try and make some emotionally driven promise. You need to let God pull you out. So here's the thing. Some of you have taken so many falls, just like one of those water skiers who wants to give up, And today, I just want to say, you know, I can't promise that you're going to get up on this next try. I can't. I just want to encourage you, keep on trying. It's worth it. Keep on trying. And by trying, I mean, follow Solomon's advice. Just keep on that path. Put yourself in a position where you can rely on God, where you're just obeying the things that you do know. At some point, it's going to click. God has not asked you to solve all the problems of this universe. And He has not asked you to have all the answers. But He has asked you to trust Him. So I want to remind you of these stages of faith. Faithlessness to this aha. I can't do it on my own. I have to trust God. I trust Him in this confessional faith exuberance. And then you come to, you believe all these doctrines. I've got the right answers. And then you come to this stage of doubt in desert and darkness where it all doesn't fit into a neat box. If you make it through that though, and if you let God in His time, not yours, pull you through that, you come to a different type of faith. A faith where all the answers might not be clear to you, but you're no longer depending on a set of principles or a system. You're depending solely on a person, Jesus Christ. That even if you don't have the answers, it doesn't matter Because you trust Him with everything. To trust Him completely is the end of our faith. It's not some beginner thing of like, oh, you trust in Jesus and now you move on. Every one of us, every day, has to struggle. Am I going to trust Him completely today? For my meaning, for my purpose, for the questions that I do not have answers to. That That's the highest expression of faith we can have. Job said it well when he went through his period of doubt. He said, though he slay me, I trust him.